Hi listeners, it's Carter, here to tell you about an incredible event celebrating the launch of ParCast's first book, Cults. On July 13th, crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler are coming together for a night of true crime to remember. And you can be part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and so much more. All ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. It's a wonderful cause and an evening perfect for any true crime fan. But time is running out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. So don't wait. Sign up at parcast.com slash cults. A note before we begin... This episode contains discussions of domestic abuse, gun violence, and murder. Listener discretion is advised, especially for those under 13. Today's case is still open and active. If you have any information that could help, resources can be found at the end of this episode. Actual police work is different from what we see on TV. But how different actually depends on where you live. If you're in a rural, low-income area, almost every investigator will tell you that the most fabricated part of NCIS, or law and order, is the ability to follow every lead, test every piece of evidence, and see every case through to an arrest. Realistically, no investigative unit has that kind of money. A 2010 study out of Iowa State University showed that investigating a single murder costs American taxpayers about $17 million. In 2009, the net cost for all murder investigations was $263 billion. That's billion with a B. And even though police budgets have increased exponentially over the past few decades, we're solving fewer murders than ever. Since the 1980s, the number of solved cases has plummeted by almost half. Now, I'm not saying anyone should put a price on justice, but the numbers pose a fair question. If money is the problem, why isn't more money solving it? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Thursday, I examine a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet a mother of five from Kentucky. When she went missing in 2015, her family began a relentless search to find her. But so far, all they've found is more heartbreak. Her name is Crystal Rogers. It 
feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. It's 2012. 32-year-old Crystal Rogers is happily living in Bardstown, Kentucky, the bourbon capital of the world. She grew up in a tight-knit family that's lived in Bardstown their whole lives. It's one of those places where kids spend the whole summer outside and aren't expected home till the streetlights come on. And it might sound cliche, but people leave their doors unlocked at night. Crystal recently legally separated from her husband of more than a decade, Keith Rogers, but they're still on good terms. Keith pays child support and their four kids are free to go back and forth between houses. Crystal now lives in an apartment she rents from a man named Brooks Hauk. Now, the Hauk family is a big deal in Bardstown. They own a lot of properties, including a 240-acre cattle farm on the outskirts of town. Brooks is busy. He works as a local firefighter and manages his family's real estate portfolio. But he finds time to be an attentive landlord to Crystal, even if he has some ulterior motives for doing so. After making a few excuses to come by and fix an appliance or two, Brooks asks Crystal out on a date, and he sweeps her off her feet pretty quickly. Before long, they're dating. At first, Crystal's parents, Sherry and Tommy, are happy for their daughter. When Crystal brings Brooks home for the first time, they spend hours trading stories over Sherry's homemade mac and cheese. They both feel like Brooks is an all-around good guy. He's handsome, he's got a thick country accent, and he seems to be close with his family. So they welcome him with open arms. But over time, Sherry begins having reservations about her daughter's new boyfriend. Crystal moves in with Brooks and starts working for him as well, showing the Houck's rental properties to prospective tenants. Around this time, Sherry starts seeing a lot less of her daughter. Crystal's other family and friends talk about how rare it is to spend time with her. If they happen to run into Crystal in public, Brooks tends to cut their conversation short and move along. When Crystal does find the time to go out, it usually comes with some sort of interruption from Brooks. He's constantly checking up on her, wanting to know where she is and who she's with. From the outside looking in, it feels like Crystal doesn't have the freedom she once had, which is why in 2012, when Crystal announces that she and Brooks are pregnant, Tommy and Sherry aren't sure how to feel. On one hand, they're thrilled about another grandchild, but they're worried about what this will mean for their daughter and Crystal's four other kids. Brooks has made it pretty clear he's not interested in acting as a father figure to Crystal's children from her marriage with Keith or in helping Crystal support them financially. When the two of them go grocery shopping, Brooks will only pay for the food that he plans to eat. He doesn't help Crystal pay for their clothes or their school supplies. And Brooks and Crystal are in very different financial situations. To make ends meet, Crystal has to pick up a part-time job at a local Cracker Barrel while she's pregnant on top of showing rental properties. 
Luckily, her parents, Tommy and Sherry, are excellent babysitters, and her extended family lives nearby. So Crystal has an extensive support network to help out. But Brooks's attitude towards parenting doesn't seem to change much, even after he becomes a father himself. In 2013, Crystal and Brooks welcome baby Eli into the world. And according to friends, Crystal practically raises their son on her own. They say she lives with Eli glued to her hip because Brooks doesn't like to be left alone with him. Meanwhile, their relationship sours. Brooks reportedly becomes more controlling, manipulative, and emotionally distant. He lies now, and those lies become more frequent. Eventually, Crystal confides in her sister that she's unhappy in her relationship, and she says she's scared of Brooks. Crystal doesn't elaborate on why she's scared, but according to Sherry, in 2014, Brooks attempts to discipline Crystal's teenage daughter, Kylie. He grabs her cell phone and tries to rip it out of her hand. He twists so hard that he sprains her wrist. By the summer of 2015, Crystal's apparently ready to leave Brooks, but she's too afraid of how he'll react. So she stays for the time being. Then on the evening of July 3rd, 2015, Sherry Ballard gets a phone call from her granddaughter. Kylie's been trying to get a hold of Crystal all afternoon, but her calls have been going straight to voicemail. It's unusual, but Sherry doesn't think much of it at the time. After hanging up with Kylie, she shoots Crystal a text. It goes unanswered, but Sherry assumes that Crystal's most likely just busy at work. The next day though, Crystal's uncle throws a 4th of July party. Crystal, Brooks, and Eli are all supposed to attend, but Brooks and Eli arrive alone, and none of Crystal's kids have heard from her. Sherry tries not to jump to conclusions, but after another night passes without hearing from her daughter, she knows something is wrong. She decides to report Crystal missing to authorities. On the morning of July 5th, Sherry gets in her car and drives towards the sheriff's station. She stops for gas along the way, and as she's filling up her tank, she sees a car she recognizes. It's Brooks. Sherry engages with him. She asks about Crystal, where she is, and Brooks tells her he doesn't know anything, which for Sherry is a major red flag. Brooks spent the majority of his relationship with Crystal demanding to know where she was at all times, and now suddenly he has no clue? It makes no sense to Sherry. Then, when she glances in Brooks's back seat and sees Eli smiling back at her, her stomach drops. Crystal would never leave Eli alone for more than a day. Even if she wanted to get away, Brooks would never agree to take Eli for an entire weekend. Something was clearly wrong. Before leaving, Sherry tells Brooks what she plans to do, that she's on her way to file a police report. And apparently he just stares at her with vacant eyes and says, that's what you should do. Sherry leaves the gas station shaken and heads to speak with officials. Meanwhile, in another part of town, Crystal's brother Casey gets a phone call from a family friend. The friend is driving down the Bluegrass Highway and is pretty sure they passed Crystal's car on the side of the road. Casey hangs up, calls his father, and in no time, the two men are standing there staring at Crystal's maroon Chevy Impala. 
It's parked just off the shoulder of the interstate. It has a flat tire. And Crystal's keys, phone, and purse are all sitting on the passenger seat. Casey and Tommy call officials to the scene. Two deputies arrive with a bloodhound, but the dog can't pick up Crystal's scent. And one of the detectives points out that the driver's seat is pulled back too far for someone of Crystal's height. So they conclude that it's highly unlikely she was the last driver. Which means everyone's worst fears might be true. It's unclear whether Crystal may have been abducted or killed, but all signs point to foul play. As the news washes over Crystal's family, Tommy makes a promise to his five grandchildren. He's going to bring their mother home, whatever the cost. Not yet knowing what that cost will be. Hey guys, I have some exciting news. On July 14th, I'm teaming up with Moment House for a can't-miss virtual event celebrating the release of Parcast's first book. And I really hope you can join me. The book is called Colts, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. And the event is a must for any avid true crime fan. It's called An Evening with the Great Minds of True Crime. And it features some of my favorite people all in one place, like M and Christine from Rituals, Sabrina and Corinne from Two Girls, One Ghost, Lainey Hobbs from Crimes of Passion, and Colts author and podcast founder, Max Cutler. I'm so honored to be a part of this memorable evening and even more thrilled to be able to share it with you. Sign up today at parcast.com slash Colts. All ticket holders will be shipped a complimentary copy of the Colts book and have the chance to participate in our real-time Q&A. Find out more about the creation of the book, ask hosts about their favorite true crime shows, and get a sneak peek at what's ahead. This is definitely going to be a night to remember, so don't miss it. Visit parcast.com slash Colts today to sign up for the virtual event and receive your copy of Colts, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. That's parcast.com slash Colts. On July 5th, 2015, officials conduct a search of Crystal Rogers' abandoned car. They find evidence to suggest Crystal wasn't the last person operating the vehicle. So naturally, the next question everyone has is, who was? The Nelson County Sheriff's Department conducts an exhaustive search of Crystal's car, but Crystal's brother Casey says that they only collect one thumbprint to send to a lab, which feels sparse. It's possible there's more done behind the scenes that Casey isn't aware of. But according to retired Kentucky State Police Officer Joe Stidham, it's also possible that the department couldn't afford to strip search the car. Stidham explains that in states like Kentucky, where investigative teams are chronically underfunded, they can only afford to send in about 10 pieces of DNA for testing per case. And since it seems unlikely that Crystal's car was involved in her actual disappearance, investigators might not have wanted to spend their budget here. The thumbprint they collect doesn't offer any leads. So deputies return the car to Sherry Ballard, but Sherry finds that troubling. Even though the sheriff's department is doing everything they can to find Crystal, 
She worries they lack the necessary resources to bring those responsible to justice. She later says, I don't think the car should have ever been given to me. To me, that's a piece of the puzzle, and there's no way I was getting rid of that car. She put Crystal's maroon Impala into a storage unit for safekeeping. Law enforcement's efforts are supplemented by the residents of Bardstown, who turn out in droves to support the Ballards. Crystal's father, Tommy, organizes daily search parties through the forests and wetlands of the county. Dozens of volunteers turn up each morning to wade through miles of tall grass and mosquito-ridden woods, all in 100-degree weather. Sherry posts up under a canopy tent along the highway. Friends and neighbors pull over to help the Ballard search the woods whenever they can, some on their way into work, others while their kids are at school. Now, I can't emphasize enough how important this is. Volunteers are free labor. With their help, authorities can cover way more ground than if they were canvassing alone. Law enforcement welcomes volunteers in most cases where searches are being conducted. For his part, when Tommy Ballard isn't physically searching for his daughter, he's driving around town asking businesses for their security footage from July 3rd or scouring the internet for clues. Meanwhile, the sheriff's department stretches their limited resources as much as they can. They organize search efforts led by cadaver dogs and mounted police officers. They canvass every inch of land possible. Crystal's uncle Mike is especially touched by the community effort, but there's one person notably absent. Brooks Hauk never shows up to help. By July 8th, three days after Crystal's reported missing, Five days after she was last seen, Detective Snow calls Brooks into the sheriff's station for questioning. During the interview, Brooks delivers the following account. For those interested, video of the interview is available online. According to Brooks, on the evening of July 3rd, he and Crystal went to the Hauk's family farm to do some chores. They fed the cattle, then started a bonfire to get rid of some scrap material. It was drizzling out, so it wasn't easy to get the fire going. But once they did, they took Eli on a walk around the property. That lasted for about an hour or so until the fire burned out. Then they left at 11.55 p.m. At this point in Brooks's story, Detective Snow stops him to make sure he's understanding everything correctly. He asks if Brooks and Crystal really spent the night of July 3rd walking around a farm after dark, in the rain, with a baby, until almost midnight. Brooks says, yes. Now, Detective Snow has seen Brooks's phone records, so he asks him about a phone call Brooks received just after midnight that night, so right after Brooks says he and Crystal left the farm. According to Brooks, that call was from a builder he works with sometimes. The guy wanted some information on a rental house but Brooks told him that Crystal handled that part of the business and he'd have her call him in the morning, which is a little strange. By Brooks's own account, Crystal should have been sitting right next to him in the car while he's talking to this builder. So why didn't he just hand her the phone? When Snow presses for answers, Brooks appears to be a little caught off guard, but ultimately he finishes his story. He says that after he and Crystal got home from the farm, he went straight to bed. And when he woke up the next morning, Crystal was gone. 
According to Brooks, this wasn't that unusual. Crystal would sometimes go MIA from time to time. She liked to go out drinking with her cousin, her sister, and her friend Sabrina. The four of them would stay out all night, and Crystal would usually end up crashing at Sabrina's place. But this claim has been disputed. According to Crystal's friend Sabrina, in the three years that Crystal and Brooks dated, Crystal never stayed out all night and never slept at her house. Detective Snow pushes back on the details in Brooks's account that don't quite add up. And as he does, Brooks loses his temper. He calls Snow's questions ridiculous and complains that his reputation is being tarnished. At one point, Brooks shouts, quote, I'm in here answering a bunch of bullshit. I can't even go on the side of the road without looking like a murderer. But as tensions threaten to boil over, Brooks gets a call from his brother, Nick, that interrupts the interview. This is noteworthy because Nick is an officer with the Bardstown police and because Detective Snow believes the call may have been planned in advance. Like I said, there's video footage of everything that happened in the interrogation room on July 8th, including the call between Brooks and Nick. So you can make your own assessment but I wanna walk you through some of the moments Detective Snow felt stood out. First, when Brooks picks up the phone, he verbally telegraphs that Nick had no idea where he was and who he was with. He tells Nick he's at the sheriff's department and quickly follows up with, I know you didn't know that. Now, the question is, why would Brooks feel the need to establish a lack of premeditation unless the call was premeditated? and he was worried about someone finding out. As a police officer, Nick could potentially get in trouble for knowingly interrupting an interrogation. Second of all, one of the alleged reasons for Nick's call is to suggest a theory that if true, would effectively prove his brother's innocence. You hear Brooke shout, I don't think she ran off with some other guy. I don't believe you. You can't make me think that. The timing of the whole conversation feels a little convenient. And before Brooks ends the call, he says, if you're telling me to leave, I'll get up and leave. Detective Snow finds the whole interaction so strange that the next day he calls Nick and asks him to come down to the station and talk. But Nick refuses, which is shocking. This is an officer of the law, sworn to serve and protect, saying he's unwilling to speak with the lead investigator on a missing persons case. Regardless of whether he thinks he can help or not, there's no good reason for him to say no. And Nick's supervisor agrees. The second he hears about the refusal, he marches over to Nick's desk and orders him to give an interview. By the way he acts in the interrogation room with Snow, you would have no idea that Nick didn't want to cooperate initially. He's all smiles. Like his brother, Nick carries himself with a Southern charm and he maintains his nonchalant attitude even as detectives seemingly catch him in a lie. They tell him that they know he met up with his brother on July 8th, a few hours after Brooks's interview with Snow, but Nick denies it. He says, no, he's pretty sure that didn't happen. And when detectives tell him there's video footage of their cars pulling into the Ballard farm, one behind the other, Nick just shrugs. He says he can't remember ever making a special trip up there. It's a casual, dismissive response that frustrate officials. But a little over two weeks later, 
they see a much different side of Nick. On July 24th, investigators bring him in to discuss the results of a polygraph test they administered. Turns out, every time they asked Nick a question about Crystal or her whereabouts, the machine indicated deception. Now, as I've said before, there's a reason polygraph results are no longer admissible in American courtrooms as evidence. There are a lot of factors that can influence readings beyond deception, factors that can be out of a person's control. So it's important for us to take Nick's results with a grain of salt. That being said, Nick is completely in control of how he reacts to the polygraph results. And when detectives tell him he failed the test, he loses it. He throws a tantrum. There's video footage of this too, and it's unnerving. Nick's dressed in his police uniform, shouting about how he doesn't care what the stupid machine says. He throws a tantrum, flailing his arms and arguing with detectives. When he finally calms down, Detective Snow shares a theory about what he thinks happened to Crystal. Snow believes Brooks and Crystal had a fight on July 3rd that spun out of control. Without meaning to, Brooks hurt Crystal. He went too far and did something he couldn't undo. Afterward, Brooks called Nick to help him cover it up. Nick promptly denies this. He tells investigators that Brooks would never kill someone. And even if he did, Nick wouldn't help him cover it up. He's a police officer for God's sake. But Snow walks away from the interview feeling like Nick isn't telling the truth. And they spend the better part of the summer looking into the Hauk brothers. Meanwhile, Sherry and Tommy Ballard continue searching for Crystal. They're wildly driven to find her, even if they don't have much hope that she's alive. And the reason for that likely has something to do with Tommy's past. As unbelievable as it sounds, Crystal isn't the first person in his life to disappear. When Tommy was a teenager, his sister Frida was murdered by her husband as they were preparing for a divorce. He apparently didn't want to pay $40 a month in child support, so he killed her and hid her body in the Kentucky wilderness. Tommy and his family spent years searching for Frida, but they only recovered her body after her killer was arrested for another violent crime and told authorities where she was buried in exchange for a reduced sentence. She was found in the woods right near where Tommy would later find Crystal's car. It's the kind of heartbreak you don't easily recover from. So I understand why hope doesn't come easy to the Ballards and why Sherry and Tommy relentlessly pursue answers in their daughter's case. More than three and a half months after Crystal was last seen, the Ballard searches haven't yielded any results. But on October 16th, 2015, the Bardstown mayor makes a big announcement. Nick Houck has been fired for behavior unbecoming of a police officer. The decision comes just a few weeks after his outburst over his polygraph results. For the Ballard family, it's great news. They no longer have to worry about Nick obstructing justice in Crystal's case. And it's not the only big announcement. That same day, the sheriff's department officially names their primary suspect in the disappearance of Crystal Rogers, Brooks Houck. By October 2015, despite naming Brooks Houck as their primary suspect in Crystal Rogers' case, 
officials don't make an arrest. Over the course of their investigation, authorities execute over 70 search warrants on properties owned by the Hauk family, including their 240-acre cattle farm. They comb through the pit that Brooks claimed to have used to burn scrap materials on the night that Crystal went missing. They find no evidence of human remains. But the lack of progress doesn't stop Crystal's father, Tommy Ballard, from obsessively conducting his own investigation. Over the next year, Tommy doesn't rest. He spends almost every day searching for clues as to what happened to his daughter. After dinner and the sun sets, he binges true crime documentaries and takes notes, hoping he might learn some valuable information that could help him in his efforts. At some point, he and Sherry petition to have the lake near the Hauk's farm drained, but the county doesn't have the budget, so they try other methods. Using their savings, Tommy hires cadaver dogs to search as much as Nelson County as possible. In time, the Ballard's home becomes cluttered with post-it notes containing tidbits of information and potential leads. According to Sherry, people often contact them with tips because they're too scared to go to the police, but she doesn't explain why or where these fears stem from. Finally, after 13 months of sleuthing, Tommy shares everything he's found with Detective Snow, and it's still not enough to make an arrest. Before Tommy leaves, the detective warns him to be careful. Tommy's a civilian, not a cop. If someone killed Crystal, that person is dangerous. Then on November 19th, 16 months after Crystal's disappearance, Tommy, his son, Casey, and his grandsons, Trenton and Brandon, wake up before sunrise to go deer hunting. It's a tradition. Tommy and Brandon arrive at their family farm around dawn. They start walking towards the open field behind the barn, but as they round the corner, Tommy throws his arm across Brandon's chest and stops him. He says he sees something moving along the tree line. He looks through the scope of his rifle, focused on something in the distance that Brandon can't see. Then a second later, a gunshot echoes across the field. Tommy Ballard falls to the ground, dead. He was shot with a rifle. At first, the police assume it was a hunting accident. They call the Department of Fish and Wildlife to survey the scene, but their officials find evidence to suggest it wasn't an accident. It was murder. Across the clearing, someone had cut a hole in the tree line to have a clear view of the Ballard's barn. Tommy's killer most likely sat there by the bluegrass highway waiting for him to arrive and whoever it was must have known him well enough to know that Tommy would be at the farm that day to celebrate the opening of deer season. Officially, Tommy's death is still under investigation. However, authorities have drawn similarities between Tommy's death and another unsolved murder that took place three years prior in Bardstown in 2013. A cop named Jason Ellis was killed late one night while driving home. He stopped his car to clear a bunch of tree branches sitting in the middle of the road. As he did, someone shot him with a long distance rifle. The killer set the blockade of branches as a sort of trap. Jason worked in narcotics. So initially his colleagues believed he might've been killed by a member of a local drug ring. But in the wake of Tommy Ballard's murder, a different theory crops up. See, Jason's partner on the force was a man whose name you've heard quite a bit already. Nick Hauk. 
it's been suggested that Jason, Crystal, and Tommy learned something about the Hauk family or their business that got them killed. According to Sherry, Crystal was gathering Brooks's tax information before she disappeared. And her daughter alluded to finding out some pretty damning information. As for what Crystal might've learned, I can't say, but there's reason to suggest that whatever it was, it was serious. Because Crystal's case has since attracted the attention of the federal government. On August 6th, 2020, Five years after Crystal's disappearance and four years after Tommy's murder, Nelson County Sheriff Ed Mattingly watches a string of vehicles pull into the parking lot of his station. They carry 150 FBI agents and personnel. A lead investigator tells Mattingly they'll be taking over the Crystal Rogers case. This isn't news to Sherry Ballard though. For years, her dream has been for the FBI to get involved. In an interview for the podcast Bardstown, which also covers this case, Sherry got emotional while speaking about how the FBI intervened. She said, I think I need someone of their magnitude to break this case and give me the justice I need. Adding, they have a lot of equipment that our local sheriff's department doesn't have. They have resources that I couldn't get otherwise. So when the FBI agents arrive that August, Sherry happily watches them break down Brooks Hauk's front door and search his home. Brooks sits on his front porch during most of the raid, occasionally getting up to walk around his yard. He mows his lawn at one point. He seems unfazed by all the FBI agents removing boxes of evidence from his home. But Sherry's thrilled when the FBI asks for Crystal's car, which has sat untouched in a storage unit for five years. Sherry says, I look back and think, what are they going to find now that other people didn't? The fact that they have her car and are taking it 100% serious means a lot to me. After four days, nine search warrants, and over 50 interviews, the FBI doesn't make any arrests. But after so many years, Sherry's willing to be patient. One year later, the FBI returns to Bardstown. They focus their efforts on a house that Brooks owned in 2015. Shortly after Crystal disappeared, Brooks poured a new concrete driveway before putting the house up for sale. And on August 9th, 2021, the FBI brings in a bulldozer to tear it up. They don't find Crystal, but they do find multiple items of interest, which they send to a lab for further testing. The FBI hasn't released their results or the nature of the items in question, but Sherry Ballard feels hopeful. She knows the FBI can't give out critical information in a case like this. At the end of 2021, she tells journalist Shay McAllister, I know they're down to last minute stuff now. I know that when this goes to court, I have one shot. If I have to wait to get the conviction I want, then I'm okay with that. Sherry delivers that interview in November. The same month, the lead investigator with the FBI, Special Agent Jody Cohen, announces they've started working with the Nelson County Prosecutor's Office to build a case. I started this episode by talking about money, and I wanna circle back to it. Sherry has spoken a lot about resources and her renewed hope when a huge, federally funded agency, the FBI, became involved. Prior to that, she and Tommy used their savings to supplement investigators' efforts. So I think it's worth asking why a mother with a missing daughter and a murdered husband 
felt like she needed to rely on the FBI, an agency that isn't guaranteed to work on any missing person or murder investigation. In 1980, when Crystal was born, about 80% of the murders in the United States were solved. When she went missing in 2015, that number dropped to less than 50%. Today, the problem is even worse in states like Kentucky, where 65% of all murder cases are unsolved. Since 2013, in addition to Crystal's disappearance, four murders have gone unsolved in Bardstown alone. Tommy Ballard's, Jason Ellis's, and two others I haven't even mentioned. The United States isn't solving less murders because our technology has gotten worse, and at first glance, money doesn't seem to be an issue. Budgets for law enforcement in the United States have swelled by hundreds of millions of dollars since 1985, and inflation only accounts for a small fraction of that. But even though budgets have gone up overall, research shows that investigative and cold case units in America are chronically underfunded and understaffed. For example, in 2022, the budget for the police department in Lansing, Michigan was set at $50 million, but they gave just $75,000 to their investigative unit, or roughly one one-hundredths of 1% 1 of their annual spending. The problem is worse in rural and low-income communities, and it's particularly bad in Kentucky. As a reminder, According to Joe Stidham, a retired Kentucky State Police officer, authorities there can typically only afford to send about 10 pieces of evidence into the lab for testing. That's 10 pieces of evidence for the entire case. We know the difference proper funding for investigative units makes in cities like Boston, San Diego, and Las Vegas, where homicide investigators essentially have carte blanche when it comes to spending. Murders are solved at twice the rate of the rest of the country, which is all to say it's possible. The more funding for investigators on the ground working these cases, the more cases we solve. Cases like Crystal's, cases like Tommy's. Sherry has taken up Tommy's mantle and serves as a voice for her daughter and late husband. There's still time for her family to get answers and I hope they will. The FBI has offered a $25,000 reward for any information leading to an arrest in the Crystal Rogers case. If you can help, please reach out to 1-800-CALL-FBI. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found the Vault Studios podcast, Bardstown, and the documentaries, The Disappearance of Crystal Rogers and Bourbon Town, incredibly helpful. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. 
This episode of Disappearances was written by Aaron Lan, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Aaron Larson. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. Hi, it's Carter, here to remind you that a very special evening with crime junkies Ashley Flowers and ParCast founder Max Cutler is just days away. It's an event celebrating the release of ParCast's first book, Colts, and you can be a part of it virtually on Spotify Live or in person. The evening will take place in Los Angeles on July 13th and feature discussions about the book, a live Q&A, and more. Plus, all ticket sales up to $125,000 will be matched by Max Cutler and donated to Season of Justice, a nonprofit founded by Ashley Flowers that provides financial resources to help solve cold cases and support families impacted by unsolved violent crimes. This has all the makings of being the true crime event of the year, so don't miss out. Register for your spot today at parcast.com slash cults. All attendees will receive a special signed copy of Parcast's new book, Cults. That's parcast.com slash cults to sign up today.